Hi, everyone. My name is Kelly Johnson. I use she, her, and they, them pronouns, and I'm the program director here at the Rothko Chapel. Welcome to our 2023 International Women's Day Observance, joining communities around the globe to celebrate progress and amplify calls to action to continue working collectively toward gender equity. The trumpet solo that opened our, our observance tonight is called Fanfare for the Women. It was composed by Libby Larson in 1993 and performed by Decamera Young artist James McAloon Jr. It was originally written to celebrate the opening of the University of Minnesota's Women's Sports Pavilion, and it sonically sets the stage for our evening together that we hope will inspire curiosity, vulnerability, courage, and strengthen our solidarity. This year's International Women's Day theme, set annually, annually by the United Nations, is uh, embracing equity, which involves challenging stereotypes, calling out discrimination and bias, cultivating inclusive environments, institutions, and systems, and seeing our struggles as, as interconnected. In thinking about the countless urgent gender equity issues to be addressed here in Houston and beyond, we've invited several inspiring women leaders to provide remarks from their specific perspectives and work. We hope you will see connections across their reflections, as well as contemplate the links to other issues you may be working on that are not spoken about specifically here tonight. When the brilliant poet and writer Audre Lorde spoke on confronting racism within women's movements at the National Women's Studies Association Conference in Connecticut in 1981, she said, quote, the strength of women lies in recognizing differences between us as creative and in standing up to the distortions we inherited without blame, but which are now ours to alter. She continues on to say, I am not free while any woman is unfree even when her shackles are very different from my own." End quote. While the volume and intensity of gender equity issues we face feels heavier each day, I believe one of the roots of our liberation lies in bodily autonomy, the simple but radical concept that each of us have the right to control our own bodies and that we should each have access to the information, resources, and means to meaningfully make and carry out decisions about our bodies and our lives, full of possibility, dignity, and respect, and free from violence, discrimination, or coercion. With this framework of bodily autonomy in mind, we can better understand what Audre Lorde asserts in highlighting that our freedom is interconnected. We can see more clearly that reproductive health care access is connected to health care rights and safety of transgender people, which is connected to the movement for black lives, which is linked to police and gun violence, which is connected to the abduction and murder of indigenous women, and so on and so forth. Also in thinking about bodily autonomy on International Women's Day, it feels important to remind ourselves that gender is a socialized construct, meaning we can each shape our gender identity and expression in whatever way we choose, and gender is not defined by our anatomy. We are all systemically shaped by gender expectations and colonial patriarchal power, power dynamics, with women and gender non-conforming people of color being more severely impacted by all oppressive structures. So before I turn it over to our first reflector, I'd like to thank the Hershey Foundation for their support of tonight's event. And I'd like to share a gentle reminder to everyone to refrain from photography and go ahead and silence your cell phones to come together fully present into this space. And uh, I'd also like to note that we'll be engaging in a moment of silent reflection after each speaker's remarks, just to allow their words to resonate through us. So with that, let tonight spark us to engage in solidarity with one another 
and link arms as we embrace equity together. Thank you. Good evening, thank you for being here. I'm Reverend Diane McGeehee. I'm the senior pastor at Bering Memorial uh, here in Montrose, and I am honored to be here. Uh, I'm gonna speak a little about reflections from a religious standpoint. And uh, there's this wonderful movie, Alice in Wonderland, that was produced in 2010. And in this movie, Alice falls through the rabbit hole and she's struggling with constantly being told who she is and who she isn't and what she can do and what she can't do. And finally, she makes a decision that she needs to follow this path and she is told, no, you can't follow that path. You have to stay in your assigned lane. And she's so frustrated, she exclaims, from the moment I fell down the rabbit hole, I've been told what I must do and who I must be. I've been shrunk, stretched, scratched, and stuffed into a teapot. I've been accused of being Alice and of not being Alice, but this is my dream. I will decide where it goes from here. I make the path. And so women throughout history have had to forge their own path with very little recognition and in the midst of constant criticism and attempts to pigeonhole them into limited, marginalized roles. And unfortunately, most of the time, that resistance has come from religious sources. So I want to spend a few minutes out of my tradition uncovering the leadership and strength of the women of the tradition because their stories need to be told, just like our stories need to be told because there's power in those stories. So the founder of the Christian movement, Jesus, supported the equality and leadership of women in his ministry. He chose women. And so in the early church, you have Dorcas and you have Tabitha and you have others who, Lydia, who are successful businesswomen who are leaders in the church. Jesus entrusted his most important revelations and messages to women. He goes to a well in Samaria, and we have demonized the Samaritan woman. She was not a woman of ill repute. She was a woman who had been subjected to Leverite laws, which actually abused her and her person and left her at risk. But Jesus entrusts her to be the first person to tell that he is the Messiah, and she converts an entire village uh, and so there, he, she's been entrusted with that message. Mary uh, of Magdala, who was not a prostitute, there's nothing in the biblical record to say that. That's what white patriarch has done to her, was one of Jesus' most trusted and intimate disciples. And she was trusted with the news of the resurrection, which is the whole foundation of the Christian message. And there are others. There was a woman from Syria, Phoenicia, who was a Gentile and outside the bounds of the Israel faith. And she had the audacity to actually debate Jesus in public, which was against the social norms, against the religious norms, and Jesus respected her for it. He engaged in an intellectual theological debate with her and actually changed his mind about some things because of the things that she had to say to him, and then he rebuked his male disciples for not respecting her. And so we have this record in the uh, New Testament and of women supporting Jesus' ministry with their finances, the major supporters of Jesus' ministry were women, both financially in terms of housing and other things. You go back in the Old Testament and you have Esther, who was a trafficked woman, someone invisible and hiding in the harem of the king, and she 
boldly goes into the king's court at risk of her own life and saves an entire nation because of her courage, because of her wisdom, because of her audacity. Deborah was a judge in Israel, and there are others throughout the tradition. And so we need to tell those stories because they're within our tradition. They've been hidden, and we need to unearth them. And then we need to join our stories to those stories because there's power in our stories because we have a lot of inequities to address that are being supported by religious traditions that don't honor the women even within their own tradition. We have got to address the autonomy of women over their own bodies. It was offensive to me that when Roe v. Wade was overturned, we had this massive national baby shower for women by a lot of the folks within the conservative tradition as if somehow that made it okay that we were forcing women who have no access to health care, who have no access to affordable daycare, who have no access to living wages to bear children against their choices. It is child abuse to force a 12, 13, 14-year-old child to have a child I don't care what the circumstances are. It's also true that women and children, uh, female children, 82% of children and youth are the victims, women are the victims of rape. 90-something percent of women are the victims of rape. None of that is being addressed, nor is, are we addressing the lack of access to health care that's leading to racial inequalities. The number of black women who die from maternal health issues in this country is abominable. And these are all faith issues. God calls us into abundance. God calls us into life. And so we have to expose that. We have to work on making sure women have a living wage, that they can afford health care, that they can afford child care, that they have autonomy over their own bodies. And, and we also have to address this attack on the transgender community, on transgender children, on people who identify in a fluid understanding of gender. That's one of the greatest gifts that's been given to us within the last decade is this fluidity of gender identity, which enables us to, to understand that we all bring gifts and skills to the table. We're all capable of leadership. We all deserve autonomy on, over our bodies. And who gets the right to decide who's a female and who's a male and what that even means. And so out of the Christian tradition, and I would suspect most of our religious traditions, we all have stories of women who led, of women who stood, who were educated, who stood for the truth, who changed history because of their courage. And, and we, in this room, there are women, and we know those women. And so what we have to do together is tell the stories empower one another to tell our stories stand together because the god of all of us wants all of us to live in abundance wants all of us to have autonomy over our our identity and our bodies and so as a christian pastor i'm called to stand with and for women for abundance for equity and for autonomy over our bodies Good evening. My name is Kim Baker. I am the Assistant Dean of Practice at the UT Health School of Public Health, where I also serve as the Assistant Professor in the Department of Health Promotion. 
and behavioral science, where I get to work on issues of bodily autonomy, reproductive health equity, and maternal mortality. Ruby did not want any more children, but she could not convince a doctor to help her. The only way you can get birth control in this time, Ruby said, was for your doctor to prescribe it. And all the doctors I knew were Catholic, she went on to say. They sure weren't going to give us any, and we ourselves didn't know too much about birth control. End quote. Ruby took matters into her own hands. I'm not leaving this hospital until you do something to keep me from having babies, she told the obstetrician on her bed in the hospital room. This is a passage from Storming Caesar's Palace, written by Annalise Orlick in 2006, that accounts the history of Ruby Duncan, who was a black female freedom fighter in the early 1970s through the 80s. Her work was to advance the rights of black working class women in a state that neglected them wholly, holistically, and fully. I had the honor of getting to know Ruby um, and her work, um, and she is still alive, actively working in the state of Nevada. But Ruby's story counts to many stories that we hear from women. Mind you, this is in the 70s. And as we fast forward to our current day and what we are faced with in terms of forced pregnancy, lack of control of our own bodies as women and birthing people in our country. I'll go on to read a little bit more about this. Because a central part of Mrs. Duncan's advocacy was the ability to control her own body and the decision not to bear more children because that is not what she wanted. She also spoke of other women who desired these same things but couldn't access this. The beliefs of their families, sometimes their very own doctors, state policies, and or limited information that made the deciding factor. This fleeting desire would take ground and swell her to become an activist for change. These stories should not be lost on us, but unfortunately in our current state of affairs, we are missing these historical counts of these women, these change agents, across our nation and in our very own state, I can imagine, of similar instances of women trying to fight for their own bodily control. Now we know that we need this attention more than ever. And so and in my work, um, I have the honor to be able to figure out how we can ensure access to birth control for the women and people who need it the most, for those who have been marginalized, um, for those who don't have quality access, for those people who walk into a health center or clinic and are judged just by on their sheer appearance um, and not given the access that they need.
And so what I want to share a little bit for you all today is more about the histories of the intersections of black women in particular and their fight for liberation, for basic access to health. That includes the access to birth control and the control over their bodies. So bodily autonomy in the United States, some 50 years later, we are having this conversation. Equitable and quality contraception access that is free from shame, stigma, and restrictive policies is still, of course, as you may well know, not yet a full reality for many black women, particularly living in oppressive southern states. So this gap has always, even though we are talking about it more loudly now in the aftermath of Roe versus Wade, this gap has always been due in part to a very complicated relationship that black women have between birth control, historical and current power structures, and the collective history of black women and girls. Race, gender, and class discrimination have impacted institutional, community, and cultural responses to the very basic needs of birth control that black women and girls have always desired. The history of birth control in the United States involves a very dichotomous relationship. For thousands of years, all women have used different items, techniques and strategies to control and manage their own fertility. Enslaved black women were no different. Their foremothers went to great lengths to circumvent the brutality of forced breeding, pregnancy, and birth, many of them relying on traditions brought over from their African homelands. During slavery, Women use various methods, including ingesting cotton root, spacing births, extending lactations to prevent unwanted pregnancies. Although these methods vary greatly in their effectiveness and success and failure rates, women effectively use whatever methods were available to them in an effort to maintain control over what little bodily autonomy they did have. After the emancipation of slavery, worries regarding the number of free black people, particularly now living in the South, amongst the white ruling class increase, coupled with fears of an increase in white women using methods for contraception to limiting the growth of the white population very soon after emancipation of slavery. This prompted the passage of the Federal Comstock Act of 1873, banning the delivery of contraception devices and information across state lines. Does this sound familiar to y'all? Okay, I hope so, and in our current context, right? As the movement for women's suffrage expanded in the early 20th century, birth control access became synonymous with the fight for women's rights. Uh, however, this was for white women exclusively. Some 110 years ago in 1913, in this very month of March, 
22 black women from Howard University marched in the women's suffrage movement, right? They had to beg to be invited and be part of this march for women's suffrage. Much of the work that they were fighting for included this conversation around bodily autonomy for reproductive justice, even then. In fact, one of, one of these women would go on to Florida um, and plant seeds for more chapters of this sorority entitled Delta Sigma Theta, which I am a member of, and I know I have some members in the audience here. But one of the women who would go on um, and found, and found um, more movement for birth control access in the South in a time where even freedom fighters in the black community saw birth control as a bad thing and as a measure of control. It was always black women on the forefront saying, now wait a minute, these are things that women I know and I speak to and we want, right? And so let's think about what this really means and what we're saying. And so it was Mary McLeod Bethune who actually went to Margaret Sanger and said, I know that there are some people in my community that think that, you know, this birth control movement and this movement with Planned Parenthood has some racial undertones and, and, and has some seeped in white supremacy and control. And I also know that birth control should be available to anybody who wants it and needs it. And so how can I, in my role, continue to advocate for the women in my community, regardless of whatever you got going on over there? <laughs> and so I am honored to tell that story about Mary McLeod Bethune and her work in Florida, because I feel like it laid the groundwork for much of our work today and the long road that we still have ahead in this complicated relationship among women of color, black women in particularly, and reproductive freedom and equity and justice. And so what I hope that we can take away from this conversation tonight is that we are in a period of reckoning. We truly are. And I know it seems, and even for my own work and the, and the people that I work with and my colleagues and my beautiful family, it does feel overwhelming that we're in this space, that we're in now, in this movement, but we should not be dismayed. This is part of the reckoning. This is part of the repair. Before I sit down, I would be remiss if I did not share this because um, my daughter knew I was coming to an event for women and girls, and she said, can I come? It's for women and girls. I know I should be there. So she's here tonight and she checked out this beautiful book from her library at school and asked me if I could read a passage. It's called Bold Words from Black Women. And when I opened it up, I automatically saw that one of the women quoted in here was from my favorite uh, woman in history, Zora Neale Hurston. And I pick her because just like Myself, she was a researcher and a documenter of the cultural experiences of black folk. And so this quote in this book says, no, I do not weep at the world. I am too busy sharpening my oyster knife, end quote. 
And so I really want us to take those words from the great Zora Neale Hurston, and even though it feels as if we should be dismayed from the current state of politics and, and fighting and structural oppression that feels to continue to grow, go home and sharpen your oyster knives every day after you practice your ounce of self-care. And that's what I would like to share with you this evening. Thank you. excited to be here and to be a part of this important conversation. So um, I'm going to skip over the standard bio, but uh, about me, I'm the, a poet, a multi-genre writer. I was the Houston Poet Laureate. Um, but essentially, I am a storyteller. I document uh, experiences in history, particularly of Latine women, of uh, people with disability. Um, I write about medical discrimination that I have faced um, and living, thriving with a debilitating medical disorder. So first, before I read any of my work, I'd like to acknowledge that we are on the traditional homeland, ancestral home of the Karankwa and Ishak Atakapi people um, I want to acknowledge that we are on their traditional territory and Karankawa people continue to live in the Texas coastal region despite genocide, ethnic cleansing, and stolen land. Um, Native communities of the Karankawa people also continue to thrive. Um, they are, one of their tribes are called um, people of the river, which is ba based on being near the San Jacinto River. So with that, I will turn to my work. Um, this is from uh, my fifth collection of poetry, um, which will be due out in the fall of this year, uh, fall of 2024. I also have a memoir being published this year, From the Womb of Sky and Earth, um, to be published this year in the fall. So this first poem, um, some context. I contracted COVID at the very early start of the pandemic. Um, I did not have access to care. I did not have access to testing. And I was sick for a very long time. And just now received the treatment that I needed. Um, I was told that I did not feel pain. I was told that I was not sick even though I knew I was sick. Um, I've been studied, medical studies have been cited to me um, that say uh, Latin women report pain more than others when pain does not exist. So I write to this reality and my writing speaks to this truth. Um, 
There are references to the sacred text of the Maya people in this poem. I have a Maya ancestry, um, and so some of the, the words that I will be using are from the sacred text Popo Vu. And the poem's title is Chibaba, which is the underworld um, in the Popo Vu. Chibaba. The lights in the bedroom flicker. I lay in our bed listening as somewhere an animal is beating its tired head. For weeks in my sick bed, I cannot sit up without my lungs feeling crushed. I can barely breathe. Whatever beast wrestles, it marks time against my skull. In a half dream, I walk to the door and shout, who's doing that? And nothing but this violent drum in its ancient beating, blow after blow, drowning my words. The thought of speaking rolls over my body with its 10,000 ton wheels. I roll over with eyes in slits, lucid enough to see my five-year-old boy jumping on the bed, aching the springs with his bare feet. We are alone here, and the framer and the shaper, the Maya sacred one, the feathered serpent curling on the ceiling with its open jaw. My son laughs as, as the god crackles luminous slivers through hell's river on the walls, clicking its broken teeth together straight into my lungs. The roof flies off, and my boy and I lay beneath the open womb of the sky. He crawls near me, wraps his small limbs around mine underneath the coat of blankets, its tassels of stars. Mama, I hope you feel better soon. At the lip of Chibaba, the underworld of death gods, a sliver of light breaks from the bedroom door. I see my baby leave and don't want to close my eyes. In Chibaba, there are many trials. I am in the house of cold. In the Popovu, the sacred Maya text says, these rooms are coated thick with frost. The wind howls cleanly through the door and clatters hail against the walls. Its whistling shrieks the emptiness. My son is whispering against my hair. I cannot hear because the cold blows and snaps. Who is doing that, I said. I sleep, I shed skin, I don't die. I wake up hacking Shallow breath, I'm falling. I fall into the scorpion rapids. I fall into the river thick with pus. I fall into the river seeping blood, the house of knives, the house of jaguars, the house of bats, the house of darkness. I fall into the river full of dead bodies. One morning or one night or the next day, or the night that was yesterday or before, tomorrow, I stand up. 
I am running down the canyon of our street, the sky hissing in sickly rose coils past the elementary school and the turbulent rivers called Shivering Canyon and Murmuring Canyon toward the bayou 10 blocks away to Bray's Bayou Bridge next to the Jewish Community Center, the mail stop, the grocery store, and the Russian general store. The bayou's banks feeling with rain, Chibaba's flooding sickness, the, the bayou ready to break over the edge of the concrete embankment. A hurricane yawns overhead, its great arms weaving sheets of rain, and I run until my whole body stings. Arriving with a familiar feeling, I'd reach the crossroads of four paths leading into the heart of Chibaba, where the heroes were undone. Yesterday, or a millennia ago, when my people who'd faced death with story and plunged into the world's gouged out mouth, pulled from underneath by vines, shimmering in phosphorescent ultramarine, verdant green, there, Next to the galvanized steel pipes in the bayou, black water spitting against the muddy banks, forcing our families into the attics, the roofs. There, with feathers of quetzal and cotinga, widening its long neck around our ankles, our throats. With the city, the bayou festers and we drown. I view my family on the bank, from under the water, caught in a wide, terrible jaw. I'm part of its foul mouth, its teeth gnashed with bodies and hair, pus and vomit. I'm slick between two shattered bones, fever, the shaking body. I look up, cast in that blue brilliance that glimmers through the gaps the faces of my children, my husband. And there it is, the sounding, the beating, the drum. The lords of death at the ball court of the gods pounding the divine rubber ball into the skulls of any mortal who dares to play. Suspending time, the gods pound against the sacred walls and eviscerate human bodies like twigs grind heroes to dust, and throw their white ash into the river. I wake up wheezing and choking. I sleep wheezing and choking. Chibalba floods our bedroom. Who dares to have a body in this place? My husband wakes me, feeds me soup, water from a straw. I suck medicine through a tube powered by a noisy black machine. The box sits like a tank between my legs. It has been week, weeks since I'd left either the bed or the couch, laying, blinking, and went awake staring through the window at a wall at one of the children's faces. Breath came as if through a tiny sieve, gulped in small pockets. You're here, the doctor said on the phone. Be grateful. The air rations itself as I sit outside, wrapped in a blanket, feeling shorn. 
I can hear the ball court in its echoing chamber. My children play in the front yard while the light flickers through the leaves of the oak tree on the yellowing lawn. Underneath the world or beside it, along it, between it, there, the pulsing of contiga, indigo, gleaming, glowing its unearthly blue, its color not of ocean blue, not a sky flanking the earth, only death lapis lazuli of the sacred, a deep cave at, at its center with a rattling tail, in its hue the blood of childbirth, the whitened lips of the dead, the infant's violet wail. I hear its pulse and ring, long and unraveling, a cruel silence with a terrifying bell inside. I have already heard the bell. I have already imagined my children without me. I rest my head back on the chair and stare at the sky that is no longer the sky. Now my son's kid sneakers of black and red and white flashing lights when he jumps. My eight-year-old's plastic glittering pink sandals both dangling off the edge of a spider swing. Their small hands flayed out and waving, the laughter, her sigh, to the canyon below. Thank you. My name is Eden Rose Torres, and I am a proud Latina trans woman. I am very thankful to the Rothko Chapel for including women of many different experiences in tonight's programming. I came out as a transgender woman roughly two years ago, but my journey navigating the wonderful but complex world of womanhood began many years before that. Like so many women in history, there was a time in my early life when I realized that womanhood and my external expressions of my inherent existence would be met with bullying, as well as contention, disgust, rage, hate, and violence. I also realized that someone else had been allowed to decide the trajectory of my life because of a decision they made when I was born my sex assigned at birth. The gender marker M on my birth certificate would haunt me for 36 years of my life as I attempted to navigate against the gender norms placed on perceived males. The existence of transgender people is something I spent four years debating with, transgender, with transphobic individuals. That ended two years ago when I came out. After all, it's a factual statement that I exist. What I do spend a nauseating amount of time doing is defending my community's basic human rights. The rights to exist publicly in a world dominated by cisgender 
humans and systems that were built to exclude anyone outside of white cisgender men. I have lost friends, business opportunities, and family simply for existing and demanding the same rights as I had before I declared I'm a transgender woman. Our lives as trans people are devalued based on our gender identity. Building a career with my nonprofit Pride Portraits and having been seen as a leader in the cis gay male community means absolutely nothing to me anymore. Because the second I opened my mouth and pushed back against transphobia, which I had excused for years behind closed doors, I was seen as that angry, brown, disruptive, and dismissible woman. My leadership was questioned and doors started closing. I am no longer in a position of privilege to accept or excuse transphobia on any level. Anything less than a person's full allyship for trans lives is inexcusable to me. It leaves room for microaggressions and blatant discrimination, which leads to the eradication of my community. I even witness more often than not leaders in the LGBTQ community excusing or creating transphobia and or trans exclusion simply because they don't want to risk speaking against wrong because they could potentially lose access to people and systems that benefit them. That type of lazy and privileged activism is why the United States of America has become filled with states, people, and systems that are calling for the genocide of transgender identities. Trans rights have come to the forefront of politics. This year, we are faced with 400 anti-LGBTQIA bills that are being discussed in state capitals across the United States. Most of these bills targeting the trans community. If this is shocking news to you, pause in that shock and then accept that the amount of privilege you have omits you from being aware that your fellow humans and the woman standing in front of you speaking is hurting and fighting for her life. I have seen five-year-olds become activists on a national level because they simply want to use the bathroom, play sports, or have access to health care. I have seen adults forced to live entirely in secret because their existence is a death sentence. There is a common statement that says transgender people at our, at, at our, uh, sorry. There is a common statement that explains transgender people are at a higher risk of suicide compared to their cisgender counterparts. This is true, but not because we are transgender, but because the immense amount of opposition we face daily simply living our truths from other people. I have no choice but to use my voice, platform, and experiences to advocate for a safer world for myself and others. However, being visible puts a target on my back. No, excuse me, a larger target on my back. The target was already there. I'm a trans woman of color. 
Trans women of color are statistically at a higher risk of being murdered. I had read about the murders of trans women of color for years in the news. But it wasn't until two months after I came out that I attended the funeral of a Latina trans woman who was murdered here in Houston. Since then, I've attended five more. I can't put into words what it feels like to look down at a dead body and know that she was murdered for simply being trans. And she looks like me, and I could be next. It has instilled a fear in me that I will never be able to get rid of. Every time I get a threat against my life, I am in fear. Every time I am doxxed and my address, phone number, bank info, and family members' names are put on the internet by white supremacist groups or MAGA Republicans, I am in fear. Every time Matt Walsh or Ben Shapiro makes a video about me that gains a collective 20 million views, I am in fear. I no longer can walk into any space and not be highly aware of my surroundings and make sure I have my eyes on entrances and exits at all times. It is a sad reality that I would be safer sitting in my apartment than I am standing here today in front of you. I hope that if you haven't already, you will take some time and do some research of your own and join me in the fight for trans liberation. And you can start right now by repeating after me. Trans women are women. Trans Good evening, everyone. I want to thank the Rothko Chapel for having me today and allowing me to speak on behalf of the Iranian women. My name is Donia Ziraksari, and I was born and raised in Tehran, the capital of Iran. I moved to US as a religious refugee in 2007 where I found my calling as an activist to raise awareness on basic human rights violations in Iran. I have made a short film called The Ticket, published a memoir called Tehran to Miami, and have been able to be the voice of the Iranians. Iranian men and women have been oppressed and stripped of their rights by the Islamic Republic regime since the 1979's revolution. Over the last 43 years, the Islamic Republic regime has systematically oppressed and persecuted women to the point that an entire gender has become a minority in their own country. Iranian women are forced to wear the hijab, often stopped on the street, lashed in public or imprisoned, for their lack of a decent hijab, for walking with a male friend, singing 
or even riding a bicycle in public. Iranian women are treated as second-class citizens in their own country. They are denied a passport, travel visa, hotel room, education, and much more without the male head of the household's approval. According to the Constitution, Iranian women's vote as a witness counts as half of a vote of an Iranian man in any situation or court. Iranian women can't even get a simple surgery nor abortion without their husband's written approval, even if their lives are in danger. Too often, they can't get a divorce from their cheating husbands because the government gives divorce rights to men only. So she's forced to stay with him for years and reluctantly accepts her husband's misdemeanors or misbehaviors once they succeed to get a divorce. If they have children, the custody of the children, especially if they are under seven years young, will remain with the father. Most mothers, including my own mother, stay in their toxic marriages just because they can't bear the separation from their children. Last but not least, under the Islamic Republic, if one dies as a virgin, she will go to heaven. Once the morale police or any other Iranian force organization captures a virgin teenager, before they sentence her to death, Someone rapes her to ensure she's no longer pure. So once she's dead, she will not go to heaven and she will go to hell. In case of Nika, a 16-year-young, peaceful protesters, pr protester, she was kidnapped by the regime, raped, tortured, killed, and then her organs were harvested. In September 2022, a 22-year-young innocent girl named Mahsa Amini was brutally beaten by the Islamic Republic of Iran's morality police for indecent head covering. She went to coma and was announced dead two days later. This was the beginning of the first female red revolution in recorded history, and it is not just ongoing, but growing stronger and moving beyond its borders to empower the entire globe to stand for justice and human rights. As of today, the Islamic Republic has killed over 530 people, including 71 children. Over 6,000 have been injured and are denied professional medical attention and close to 20,000 people have been arrested, including over 180 children. Many have been raped, and many more are still missing. 
For six consecutive months, the regime has been kidnapping, raping, beating, torturing, killing innocent protesters, and has shut off the internet so the news of their massacre does not get out. In the meantime, Iranians around the world have managed to push, push for the Massa Act, which mainly puts sanctions on the supreme leader and his officials, successfully removed Iran from UN Commission on the Status of Women, and pushed UN to initiate a fact-finding investigation team to thoroughly investigate alleged human rights violations in the Islamic Republic. Although the regime's brutal behavior does not need further investigation and can be proved by simply following any Iranian's Instagram feed. Around the world, people of all color, races, and gender have been moved and have been standing side by side with the Iranian men and women asking for a regime change. Recently, Islamic Republic has been poisoning high school girls as a mean to inject fear in the nation and suppress the women-led revolution. So far, over 800 people have been poisoned and one high school girl has died. The Taliban in Afghanistan did the same some years ago. And now banning women from education and the Islamic Republic has been using the same tactic to install fear in high schoolers. This is not a religious revolution. This is a revolution asking for basic human rights, such as freedom of expression, the right to education, to breathing a clean air, walking safely on the streets, and even riding a bicycle. The right to see your child returning home from school alive the right to be a woman. On the, on the International Women's Day, I want to honor the brave Iranian women standing up for their freedom. I want to call on women around the world and encourage them to stand up and fight for their rights wherever they may be and join the global movement. Because Injustice in Iran is injustice everywhere. Thank you. I feel very short right now. <laughs> I don't know if I can. I could just move this. If that makes sense. Do you want to move this to the side? Yeah, that's fine. I'll just move my phone. Okay, that, that works. Well, I want to thank you all so much for being here, and I want to thank the Rothko Chapel. I'm a native Houstonian, and as such, this is a really, really special place to me. It, anytime I'm here, I'm reminded that multiple things can be true at the same time. Uh, for starters, I can't think of anywhere else where you can find silence in the middle of like Houston rush hour. So that is, that's a phenomenal feat in and of itself. 
My name is Rachna Kray. I'm the executive director of DIA. Since 1996, we have empowered South Asian survivors of gender-based violence with culturally specific services that help them address culture stigmas and systems barriers. Um, I know today our theme is about embracing equity. So equity. <laughs> equity is, is tough. It requires us to recognize that each person faces different circumstances, and those circumstances are based on a multitude of factors. Those factors are from the past, they're in the present, and the factors are personal, they're relational, they are socio-political. And then, after we recognize that, we must correct for, those, for the imbalances that are caused by those many factors. It takes a lot of effort, and it takes a lot of time. And we're living in a society that fosters a scarcity mentality. So embracing equity is a big ask. Often, we're met with a range of reactions from this can't be done to this shouldn't be done. But the good news is, as you've seen today from these phenomenal leaders, my colleagues, is that this work is happening already in our, in our communities. For example, um, at Daya, after a life-threatening physical assault, our client Mona called the police. And that's a really good example of equality, the same option for everybody. When she called the police, though, the thing that they didn't know was that her immigration status is tied to her husband and he's left her undocumented and threatened to deport her, which would separate her from her child. She was not allowed to learn English or learn how to drive or be able to work or make friends. Her family was a world away. Even when the police were there, he threatened her life, but he did so in their native language so that no one could understand what he was saying at the scene except for her. So for survival, she didn't file a police report that day. Equality didn't work that day. But the police connected her, the responding officer connected her to Daya. And in Mona's case, equity was support from her Daya counselor who provided her support in her own language and safety planning so that she could flee. Equity was financial assistance, but it was through gift cards, because we were talking about somebody who is not eligible for benefits and who was kept from even getting an identification form to be able to open her own bank account. It was a connection to an immigration attorney so that she could file for a protective visa. Now, I've made it sound like a really straight line, and it absolutely isn't, so... Um, Gender equity, it's, it's not going to be achieved in one hotline call or in one year, or as we've learned even in one global pandemic. As the barriers to equity become deeper and the laws, especially here in Texas, become more exhausting, it can be really easy to fall into that group of it can't be done. But I hope that instead of accepting the things that we can't change, that instead we commit to changing the things that we can no longer accept. And that we do that in our own special way. Each of us have the power to do that. 
So even though I work at a, a nonprofit that's focused on, on equity, when I think about embracing equity, I'm focusing on embracing it in my own relationships, the ones with my partner, my family, my colleague, my friend, and my community. Um, I'm going into my personal relationships with curiosity, with an open mind, and with love for myself and for others, for my people. <laughs> when you root relationships in equity, when you find out what people need and where they're coming from and where they need to be met, it's, you get to be yourself. You get to make mistakes, you get to disagree, you get to change your mind, and you get to imagine together. You get to take the things that you need and you, can, you get to give what you have to give. We can be building these little budding microcosms of equity that can be passed down from generations, across generations. And in that way, we can give generational trauma, something we all know quite a bit about, a well-deserved traveling partner. <laughs> Your personal relationships do have the power to change the world. And this isn't to say it's gonna be instant or easy, and as we heard, especially from Eden, without losses. Relationships will be lost. One of my favorite quotes, though, from Michelle Obama says that grief and resilience live together. And that is the spirit I believe we need to embrace equity. And that's actually the spirit that I felt here in this room, and it's this room that reminds me that so many things can be simultaneously true. It's amongst these giant panels of rich darkness that I always, always find light. And that's exactly how I feel tonight, so thank you. Before I say any more words, let's just take a moment to all, like, take a couple deep breaths, feel your body on the bench, feel your feet on the ground. Let's just let everything that we've heard tonight kind of take a moment to sit inside of us for a bit. So I want to extend my great gratitude to Pastor Diane, Kimberly, Leslie, Eden, Danya, Rachna. Uh, Rachna. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your concerns, your resources, inspirations, calls to action with us tonight. Um, let's go ahead and put our hands together to share our gratitude to them. Thank you so much. And if you've enjoyed our time together tonight, I invite you to come back to the chapel on Sunday, March 26th at 3 p.m. for our upcoming Oscar Romero Awards Ceremony, where we'll be honoring grassroots activists uh, working at the intersections of art, spirituality, and civil rights in the areas of reproductive justice, 
mutual aid organizing, and amplifying the voices of incarcerated women. Uh, we do have brochures that look like this that are located at the front desk on your way out where you can learn more about this program and others coming up. So we'll close our time together tonight with a meditative heart performance by Decamera Young artist Kelsey Sham of Essence of Ruby, composed by Brandy Younger in 2016. As we listen to this radiant piece, I invite you to think about the lineage of amazing women who have made an impact on your life, known and unknown, past, present, and future. Uh, reflect on women who may no, may no longer be present here with us, but who have paved the way for you on your journey. Women in your life today who provide support and love and care to you, um, and women in your life today who challenge you. And all the women who have yet to come into the world, that they may find peace, joy, empowerment, and solidarity with us and one another. Thank you again for your time tonight, and we hope to see you back at the chapel again soon.
Thank you.